Good, so a, a warm welcome to the uh, penultimate meeting this year of the Aristotelian Society. And it's a very great pleasure to introduce this evening's speaker, Giles Pearson, who is um, Senior Lecturer at the University of Bristol. And his research is mainly in ancient philosophy and metaethics. And he's currently at work on a book on metaethics, looking at the role of desire in motivation. Uh, which is, of course, closely related to the topic of this evening's paper. Um, we'll follow the uh, usual format. Uh, Giles will present his paper uh, first, and that will take between 45 and 60 minutes. Uh, we'll then have a brief break for tea or coffee, and that will be followed by the question and answer session, which will take us through to 7.15pm. Uh, so, uh, without further ado, I'll hand over to Giles, whose title is what are the sources of motivation? What are sources of motivation? Sorry, what are sources of motivation? <laughs> yes, sorry, yes. Um, thanks very much indeed, and thanks for the invitation, and thanks to everybody for coming. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. So, suppose Mike is motivated to go to the pub. Something moves him to do so, perhaps, say, the cosy feeling of being in the pub, or the prospect of drinking a beer or two, or the chance to see some friends. My question is, what sort of thing are we picking out when we refer to what motivates us in such cases? In particular, are we picking out a psychological state, or states, e.g. a belief, a desire, or a belief-desire pair, or are we picking out the content of such a state or states, or are we picking out a putative fact? My use of sources of motivation should be contrasted with another, there's a debate in metaethics concerning whether beliefs can bring about desires and so motivation on their own, or conversely whether motivation requires an underived desire or at least a desire that's traceable back to such a desire. Suppose Mike is motivated to go to the pub and this entails that he desires to go to the pub. That could still be compatible with a cognitivist account of motivation since it could be that it was Mike's belief that he would enjoy a pint, say, that brought about his desire. But if his desire to go to the pub must be traceable back to a desire, say, for pleasure, that isn't itself brought about by a belief, the, cognitive, the cognitivist account would be mistaken. Philosophers sometimes refer to this issue as concerning whether sources of motivation must terminate in desires. That's not my usage. I'm not asking whether the explanation of motivation must always terminate uh, or always ultimately be traceable back to an underived desire. I'm asking what sort of thing, what kind of entity, one is motivated by when one is motivated. The by here will receive uh, further specification in due course. Investigating sources of motivation in the sense I intend is often approached via examining the nature of motivating reasons, and I shall address that too. Many philosophers suggest, or write in ways that suggest, that psychological states desires, beliefs, or belief-desire pairs are sources of motivation. And indeed, this can seem appropriate in various contexts. So why is Mike going to the pub? Well, he's motivated by his desire for a beer. What motivates him to order a pint of pitchthorque rather than a pint of buckham? That's what he wants to drink. Why does he choose his favourite seat by the bar? That's the chair he always wants to sit in. And so on. In such contexts, it can seem natural to think of desires as sources of motivation. Indeed, if someone were to ask Mike why he's drinking pitchfork rather than buckham, he can legitimately answer, that's what I want to drink. 
and that may also reflect some sort of phenomenological experience that he possesses. Beliefs, too, can naturally be cited as sources of motivation in certain contexts. Good examples are cases in which one is motivated to do something owing to an erroneous grasp of the situation. Suppose Mike walks to the pub in the rain one Sunday lunchtime, anticipating his usual bacon banjos and sausage sizzlers, but, unbeknownst to him, there's no food on on this occasion. If asked what motivated him to walk to the pub... Mike would no doubt cite his belief that bacon banjos and sausage sizzlers were in the offing. He will concede that, gravely, his, mistake was belief, his belief was mistaken this time, but nonetheless, that was his source of motivation. Finally, consider belief-desire pairs. Suppose Mike walks to the pub because he wants to talk to Tim, the landlord, whom he believes will be there. But suppose, unbeknownst to Mike, Tim is away visiting his mother. Mike might say that he was motivated uh, to walk to the pub by his belief that Tim would be there in conjunction with his desire to speak to Tim. In such ways, psychological states may seem to be sources of motivation. However, this conclusion has been resisted. Let us focus on the case of desires. Feeling extremely thirsty on a hot day would appear to be a strong case of a desire, the desire to drink, acting as a source of motivation. But T.M. Scanlon invites us to consider more carefully what's going on. And this is the passage under number one on your handout. Scanlon says, First, there's the unpleasant sensation of dryness in my mouth and throat. Also, there is the thought that a cool drink would relieve this sensation and, in general, feel good. I take this consideration that drinking would feel good to count in favour of drinking, and I'm on the lookout for some, some cool drink. This description includes three elements a present sensation, the dryness in my throat, the belief that some action would lead to a pleasant state in the future, and my taking this future good to be a reason for so acting. It's this future good, the pleasure to be obtained by drinking, that makes it worth my while to look for water. The present dryness in, my, in the throat, and the fact that this condition is not about to go away on its own, give me reason to believe that a drink of water in the near future will give this particular pleasure but the motivational work seems to be done by, by my taking this future pleasure to count in favour of drinking. The key to Scanlon's analysis is to consider the structure of the desire from the agent's perspective. With this in view, he thinks we can see that having a desire to drink is not merely a matter of feeling impelled to do so, it involves seeing drink as desirable, because, for example, it will be pleasant. And it's the latter, on Scanlon's account, that serves as the source of motivation, not the desire itself. If this generalises, as Scanlon thinks it does, sources of motivation will not be desires, but taking some desirable feature of an act to count in favour of acting. Is Scanlon right? Well, even given that we're focusing on what agents are motivated by, rather than, rather than the notion of what motivation can be traced back to that I mentioned in my introductory remarks, the answer, as to whether Scanlon's right or not, would seem to depend on how we construe sources of motivation. Scanlon's understanding of this, he uses the expression himself, um, is what we might call forward-facing. He is, in effect, inviting us to consider what the agent looks to when he or she is motivated. This is similar to what John McDowell referred to as the favourable light in which agents view acting, or, so, or what Tom Nagel referred to as the considerations in view of which agents are motivated. The thought is then that desires do not enter into that, this viewpoint. Rather, agents are motivated by what they see as desirable about the acts in question. But there seems to be another understanding of sources of motivation in the motivated by sense. 
We can say that we were motivated to scratch an itch by our desire to scratch it, and that Mike was motivated to go to the pub by his desire for a sausage sizzler. It can be granted, for the sake of argument, that we must have seen something desirable about those acts, alleviating discomfort or pleasure, for example, but this alone doesn't seem to undermine the appropriateness of claiming that we were motivated by desires as psychological states for those things. That the desires themselves might not be something we focus on or themselves cast a favourable light on the act, but they are nonetheless attributable or ascribable to us and can be said to be states we possess which motivate us. Thus, even if desires do not serve as sources of motivation in the forward-facing sense that Scanlon was focusing on, they may nonetheless do so in this, what we might call, backward-facing sense. And, I take it, this notion goes some way towards accounting for the intuitions we started with. Now, in this paper, I'm, pr I'm concerned with sources of motivation in the forward-facing sense, in Scanlon's forward-facing sense. But is it even correct to maintain that desires cannot serve as sources of motivation in this sense? What about when we try to work out what we want? For example, when choosing a dish on a menu or what to do on a day off. We might think, what do I fancy? What do I really want to do? And thereby bring our desires into conscious reflection. And it seems possible that what we resolve on can be a source of motivation. Or consider cases in which we have to resist doing something we avow we really want to do. Mike might judge that he really shouldn't go to the pub tonight since he has an early start tomorrow. But suppose he really wants to go to the pub because some old friends are in town. Mike might say to himself, I shouldn't go, I've got to get up early tomorrow, but I really want to go. If this motivates him, his desire may seem to serve as his source of motivation. Well, we clearly can reflect on the desires we possess and weigh them in our deliberations. But does this really show that sources of motivation in the forward-facing sense can actually be psychological states, our desirings? Suppose one is trying to decide between two dishes on a menu. Possibly one tries to envisage how the two dishes might taste and then seeks to select the one that one would enjoy most. Or perhaps considerations pertaining to the dish's calorie content or size might come into play. Nonetheless, either way, in such scenarios, it is, again, I suggest, not really the desire for either dish uh, that is serving as one source of motivation, but the contents of the evaluative cognitions revealing what is desirable about them. I suppose it might be suggested that one could simply ask oneself, what dish do I want, and then imagine both dishes until an answer pops into one's head, without explicitly rehearsing the putative desirability features of both dishes. But even if this description can be appropriate, it still wouldn't show that desires as psychological states can serve as sources of motivation. For in such a scenario, what serves as the source of motivation seems to be the content of the thought resolved on, say, I most want the chicken, or simply the chicken, and this seems to be a conclusion one arrives at in response to raising the question of what one most wants, not a psychological state itself. The same points would seem to hold mutatus mutandis for any proposed psychological state or combination of such states. If we think of sources of motivation as what we look to, or that in light of which we are motivated, the forward-facing notion, it becomes mysterious how a psychological state could be a source of motivation. What we encounter in our experience are the contents of psychological states, not psychological states themselves. And even when we do consciously reflect on our psychological states and consider that we have them, we are again encountering the content of such a state, content that refers to the states we possess, not a state itself. Before we move on, 
We should pause to consider the identification of the psychological state that reveals the content in question as cognitive rather than, say, conative. Standardly, the contents of our desires refer simply to the actions or states of affairs we desire. We desire, for example, to eat a cream cake or to go for a run. Let us assume, as before, that insofar as we desire these things, we must construe uh, the acts as desirable in some respect. We want a cake for the pleasure that would provide. We want to go for a run for, say, the health benefits. But the states that reveal the desirability features here seem to be cognitive, cognitive states that underlie our desires, not desires themselves. It may perhaps sometimes seem natural to refer to desirability features in our specifications of the contents of certain desires. We might, for instance, say that we desire a delicious-looking cake or to view a beautiful sunset. But such cases, I suggest, don't really undermine the point at hand, for they seem to be ones in which we incorporate part of the content of the underlying evaluative cognition into the content of the desire, perhaps for contextual emphasis. We take it that the cake is delicious or looks delicious and so want to eat it. And we construe the sunset as beautiful and so want to admire it. And we draw attention to these features for various reason, reasons when expressing our desires. If we now consider sources of motivation, it seems clear that they are best thought of as the contents of such underlying evaluative cognitions rather than the contents of the desires those cognitions underlie. What appears to us to motivate our performing an act is the action under the guise of the rele relevant desirability feature, not simply the action itself. It is what we see as attractive about eating a cream cake or going for a run, not simply eating the cake or going for, the, for a run that motivates us. And even if on some occasions we may simply refer to the action or object desired as what motivates us, what's motivating you to stay here, one might be asked, the cream cake, one might reply, arguably, this is because the cognized desirability feature is simply assumed. It's understood that we construe the cake as something that would be pleasurable to eat and that, and that, that is what um, it is that motivates us. So let the proposals thus, thus far be that sources of motivation in the forward-facing sense are the contents of evaluative cognitive states, namely those that reveal what we see as desirable about performing the acts in question. In what follows, I shall refer to this proposal as the view that sources of motivation are propositional content. Depending on how we understand propositional content, this may in fact turn out to be too restrictive, for it may rule out certain kinds of non-rational motivation. If so, we shall need to expand the contents of the cognitive states in question beyond propositional content, um, but to pursue this issue now would take me too far astray. Now... Against my proposal, a number of philosophers instead identify sources of motivation in the forward-facing sense with facts. They identify sources of motivation with facts. In the remainder of this paper, I'm going to address the accounts of two central protagonists of this view, namely Jonathan Dancy and Maria Alvarez, although their views differ in important ways, as I shall try to bring out. Both Dancy and Alvarez arrive at the conclusion that sources of motivation are facts via the notion of motivating reasons. In effect, they subscribe to the view um, under two on your handout, um, which I shall now sketch as such, um, which is basically, one, sources of motivation, in success cases at least, are motivating reasons, two, motivating reasons are facts, so three, Sources of motivation, in success cases at least, are facts. 
Let me elaborate on this. Okay, so concerning one, Dancy refers to the expl the explaining uh, uh, refers to explaining an agent's performing some action by specifying the reasons in light of which he acted. And he notes at the beginning of his book Practical Reality, he says, uh, this is passage three. In what follows, the phrase "in the light of" will be used to signify the relation between an agent and the reason the reasons for which the agent acted. And I will speak of the agent's reasons in a similar way. The agent's reasons are the reasons that motivate him, um, namely the considerations in the light of which he chose to do what he did. Similarly, Alvarez claims the following, and this is passage four. A reason is called a motivating reason because it is something that motivates an agent. That is, it is what he took to make his firing right, and hence to speak in favour of his firing, which played a role in his deciding to fire. Considerations that motivated the agent, Dancer's expression, or what the agent took to speak in favour of acting, Alvarez's, are just the sort of thing I'm trying to capture by source of motivation, sources of motivation in the forward-facing sense. The need with Alvarez for the parenthetical in success cases at least, in one, will become clear a bit later. Turn now to two. Dancy takes it to be bordering on a trivial truth that a motivating reason that in light of which one acts, must be the sort of thing that is capable of being among the normative reasons in favour of so acting. It must, in this sense, be possible to act for a good reason, he says. By normative or good reasons, he means reasons we try to cite in favour of an action, the ones that should show that the action was sensible or right or whatever. Dance is so sure that someone can do an action for the very reason that makes it right, that is, that what motivates an agent to perform some action um, can be what actually favours doing it. In short, that motivating reasons should be the right sort of thing to be normative reasons, as I quoted on, on, on passage five, that he refers to this idea as the normative constraint um, and rejects views simply if they don't meet that. Now, for ease of exposition, I shall employ Dance's label, the normative constraint for this view. But whether the principle really is a constraint, I shall consider later. Dancy next claims that normative reasons are facts or states of affairs. Uh, this is passage six. He says, what makes my action wrong is that she badly needed help and I just walked away from her. What makes overtaking on the wrong side of a bend not a very sensible thing to do is that there may well be something coming the other way. Once one started in this vein, one can go on forever. It must be right to think of normative reasons as facts, as states of affairs or as features of the situation. But if normative reasons are facts or states of affairs, and motivating reasons can be normative reasons, it seems that when an agent's motivating, reason, um, motivating reasons are normative reasons, the agent's motivating reasons are facts or states of affairs. And Dante explicitly acknowledges this. He says, passage 7, A matter of fact can be someone's motivating reason for action. If my motivating reason for going to Georgetown is that a conference is to be held there, and I'm right about that, then something that is the case is my reason for making the trip. In fact, Dancy wants a stronger conclusion even than this. Following Bernard Williams, he thinks that whether or not uh, the agent has true or false beliefs cannot affect the form of the explanation which will be appropriate to her actions. Call this the explanatory maxim. Since Dancy accepts this ma maxim and wants to take his lead from the success cases, 
he must hold not merely that motivating reasons can be facts or states of affairs, but that motivating reasons are always facts or states of affairs, since according to the maxim, whether or not we're mistaken cannot change the form of the account that's appropriate. Dancy then holds two. Alvarez also claims that motivating reasons are facts, although unlike Dancy, she takes facts to be true propositions rather than states of affairs. Now that, of course, brings her view closer to my own, but as we shall see, it's still importantly different, and the differences make it expedient for me to consider her view with Dancy's. Why does Alvarez think motivating reasons are only true propositions? Well, she writes this, this is passage 9. If the truth or falsehood of what is presented as one's reason for acting or for believing did not affect its status as a reason, then there would be no need to retract one's claim that one's reason for fying was that P on being confronted with the fact that not P. But there is an implicit contradiction in claims that one's reason was something one knows to be false, and because of this, on, on finding out that it's not the case that P, one has to retract the claim that one's reason was that P. And she spells out the implicit contradiction as follows, and this is passage 10. I cannot, she says, without the air of paradox, because of the implicit contradiction, say something like, my reason for giving him the money is that he needs it, although he doesn't. And such statements remain paradoxical when recast in the third person. Her reason for giving him the money is that he needs it, although he doesn't, and again, uh, and remain paradoxical again in the past tense. Thus compare my reason for giving him the money was that he needed it, although he didn't need it, and I believe that he needed money, although he didn't. The first retains an air of paradox that the second does not have. I suppose one might question whether my reason for giving him the money was that he needed it, although he didn't, really does sound paradoxical. If I subsequently discovered the chap didn't need the money, can't we still say that that was my reason for giving him it? Alvarez would resist this. We should then say that my reason was not his needing the money, he didn't, after all, but my believing he needed the money. On Alvarez's account, this would then be an explanatory reason, not a motivating one. The agent would have been motivated only by an apparent reason. I suppose one might instead suggest that when we're motivated by false beliefs, we're motivated by false reasons. Against this, Alvarez <coughs> writes the following. This is passage 11. That would be analogous to saying that a Vermeer that has been shown to be a fake is still a Vermeer, only it's a fake Vermeer. And clearly this is just a way of saying that it's not really a Vermeer. Just a saying that something is a false reason is just a way of saying that it's not really a reason. Of course, one might, if one wishes, call false beliefs that motivate false reasons, but I think that's a mislead, that, that, that is misleading, as it suggests that they are reasons which they are not. It does indeed sound odd to say that a fake Vermeer is a Vermeer, only a fake one. It's not a Vermeer at all. It just looks like a Vermeer, say, to the untrained eye. If reasons are analogous to this, a mistaken reason would not be a reason, only a mistaken one. It would not be a reason at all. It would just appear so. Both Dancy and Alvarez, then, affirm one and two, albeit with different uses of fact. From these premises, we can clearly infer three. What, was she, what should we make of these views? Well, let's start with Dancy. It's surely highly plausible to think that an agent's beliefs are relevant to, to how he or she is motivated. If Mike believed the pub wasn't serving bacon, banjos and sausage sizzlers, he wouldn't have walked there. In fact, Dancy agrees with this. 
even though, as we've seen, he thinks motivating reasons are facts, he also thinks that motivating reasons can be characterised as things believed, or what is believed. Now, the, con the, the conjunction of these views, however, seems to be problematic. For it's natural to think of things believed as the contents of beliefs, and to equate contents of beliefs with propositions, where propositions are, as Dancy himself accepts, truth bearers, not states of affairs, say, as truth makers. It seems, then, that Dancy must either give up the idea that things believed are the contents of beliefs, or else give up the idea that the contents of beliefs are propositions. If the former, he would seem to be faced with the difficulty of telling us what these things believed are, on his view, if not the contents of beliefs. If instead he gives up the idea that contents of beliefs are propositions, uh, he will, by his own admission, be rejecting what he calls a philosophical commonplace and advancing an outlandish philosophy's mind, as he puts it. That said, I should note that later on, uh, in the passage quoted under 13, he, when addressing his own view, he nonetheless freely exchanges contents of belief with what is believed. But there's a further problem. As we've seen, Dancy accepts the explanatory maxim, and so holds that whether the agent is mistaken cannot affect the form of the account we provide. But then Dancy owes us an explanation of what it is that agents are motivated by when they possess false beliefs. Clearly, they cannot be motivated by facts as obtaining states of affairs. So by what, then? What are they motivated by? Well, Dancy responds as follows in passage 12. He says, Perhaps the only answer is that it's something that may or may not be the case, but I do not pretend that this is very enlightening. A little later, he adds, in passage 13, Perhaps all that needs to be said, and all that can be said, is that the content of a belief... What is believed, that was the juxtaposition I was mentioning, is something that either is the case or is not. Given the insistence that motivating reasons can be facts, it seems that to accommodate the explanatory maxim, we must accept that facts or states of affairs can either be or not be. Motivating reasons are things believed. What is believed may either be the case or not be the case, but motivating reasons are also facts on Dance's view. So facts may either be the case or not be the case. There can be non-factive facts, so to speak. And this begins to sound not only counterintuitive, but to be verging on the mysterious. Now turn to Alvarez's view. She accepts the normative constraint, but appears to reject the explanatory maxim. Although one and the same reason can be both normative and motivating, normative constraint, we will, on her view, only count as being motivated by reasons, facts, um, in success cases. In error cases, the agent isn't motivated by a fact, but instead acts for what is merely an apparent reason. Acts for what is merely an apparent reason. On this view, just as a fake Vermeer is not a Vermeer, but only appears such, so too there aren't false motivating reasons, but only apparent motivating reasons, which are obviously not facts. Contrary to the explanatory maxim, it seems, sources of motivation, on Alvarez's view, can be different in form depending on whether the agent possesses true or false beliefs. Well, should we accept the explanatory maxim? The maxim, in this context at least, surely does have intuitive force. For it's hard to see how whether or not the agent has a correct understanding of the situation could affect the status of the entity she is motivated by in the forward-facing sense. No doubt in success cases, we shall say she's motivated to do something that actually matches the way things are. But suppose she got there by accident or by a fluke. 
to say that nonetheless, since she's motivated to do something that happens to correspond to what she has normative reason to do, she must be motivated by a different kind of entity would seem highly odd and to cry out for explanation. However, although Alvarez appears to reject the explanatory maxim, this isn't, I think, her underlying view. It's only an ambiguity in the way fact can be employed that creates this impression. Facts can be taken to be truth-makers, the things owing to which true propositions are true. We can, for example, say the fact that Liverpool are 4-0 up at half-time makes it true to assert that they are if someone asks us. Facts in this usage would often be equated with states of affairs. But facts can also be taken to be true truth-bearers rather than truth-makers. If someone states truly that Liverpool are 4-0 up, she can be said to assert a fact where the fact is a successful truth-bearer, not a truth-maker. Facts in this usage would often be equated with true propositions. As I mentioned earlier, Alvarez typically uses facts to pick out true propositions, not, as Dancy does, states of affairs. Hence, if we employ Dancy's notion of facts as states of affairs, she would not hold that agents are motivated by facts, I take it. Given this, she presumably thinks that in error cases, agents are motivated by propositions that happen to be false. But if this is Alvarez's view, it would seem that she ought to accept the explanatory maxim, since, on her view, so sketched, in both error and success cases, agents would be motivated by propositions. Nonetheless, there's still a significant disagreement between Alvarez and myself. As noted, she also accepts the normative constraint. This entails that motivating and normative reasons can be the very same sort of thing, and given the explanatory maxim, that it must be so in both success cases and error cases. Given then that Alvarez, that Alvarez thinks motivating reasons are propositions, normative reasons must also be propositions. Now this, I think, we should reject. As I see it, Dancy must be right to think that normative reasons are facts as states of affairs, i.e. truth-makers, not true propositions, true truth-bearers. It is facts as states of affairs, not propositions, that actually uh, favour or disfavour certain actions. Given what I am, and all the various properties I have, the fact that a glass of water is laced with arsenic is a reason for me not to drink it. Given Mike's makeup, the fact that a pub is, pub is serving pints of pitchfork and offering bacon, banjos and sausage sizzlers is a reason for him to walk there in the rain. Mike will not be happy if he turns up at the pub and Tim tries to offer him a proposition to eat or drink. He wants a pint and a sausage sizzler. Propositions can, of course, pick out and refer to the normative reasons we possess, but the normative reasons themselves must be what actually favour or disfavour the acts in question. That is, facts as states of affairs. It's perhaps, and it's perhaps worth adding, that the fact that normative reasons can be characterised with that clauses should not make us think that they are propositions. As Dancy notes, and this is passage 14, of course we do, or at least can, say such things as that she is in distress is what made this action callous, and that she is in distress is a proposition. But this should not persuade us that the very thing that made his action callous is a proposition. We also say things like that the cliff was unstable was a consequence of the heavy rain, and that the cliff uh, was unstable as a proposition, but we would surely be unwise to conclude from this that a proposition was a consequence of heavy rain. 
It may also be worth noting as an aside that the view that normative reasons are facts as states of affairs isn't, I think, in tension with the humane view that normative reasons are grounded in agents' desires. For it could be that the facts in question are in part constituted by agents' desires, and that therefore the facts that pick out normative reasons are grounded in desires. Hence, neither does the simple notion that normative reasons are facts support an anti-humane account of normative reasons either, such as dances. Until we specify what can constitute the facts in question, the notion that normative reasons are facts is neutral on that matter, as I see it. If, then, we accept the nor that, that normative reasons are facts and we embrace the explanatory maxim, we appear to be left with two options. We either follow Darcy and maintain that motivating reasons are not propositions and thereby embrace an attempt to explain the difficulties that we saw for his view, or else we reject the normative constraint which both Alvarez and Darcy endorse. Since the notion that motivating reasons, sources of motivation, are propositions seems eminently plausible to me, as I sketched earlier on, it's the latter option I favour. Hence, we must finally consider the normative constraint. Now, given that Dancy takes rejection of the normative constraint, the notion that motivating reasons should be the right sort of thing to be normative reasons, to be, and I quote, so paradoxical as to be close to ridiculous, one might think that anyone who wishes to resist this principle is going to have to reject something approximating to a trivial truth. But in fact, this, this passage in, in, I'm going to now relay is all that Dancy says in favour of the principle. This is passage 15. Why should it be true, he says, that if there are normative reasons for action, it must be that people sometimes act for those reasons? And if they do, their reasons must figure in some correct explanation of their action. The best I can do is resort to rhetoric. How could there be this complex structure of reasons favouring and disfavouring actions if humans were incapable of registering the fact? And how could it be possible in general for people to recognise the fact and not to take it into account in practical deliberation? Is there any difference here between practical and theoretical deliberation? <coughs> Suppose that there are reasons for and against different beliefs, as there are for and against different actions. Again, it seems inconceivable that there should be this structure on the theoretical side unless humans were capable of recognising it, at least to some extent. And surely it is inconceivable that we should do other than take the things we recognise to be relevant to the question what to believe. In my view, then, we have to accept that normative reasons, here he's calling them justifying, are capable of explaining actions. Dance's point is indeed somewhat rhetorical. It's not in fact difficult to imagine that there could be a complex set of favouring or disfavouring reasons that we are somehow unable to grasp. Perhaps we're inherently cognitively deficient and are unable to grasp the true nature of things. And if we can't grasp such reasons, clearly we wouldn't be able to take them into account in our practical reasoning. Of course, we'd then want to know, um, we'd then want to know why we should nonetheless think those reasons exist, but that would be another question. Similarly, with theoretical reasons, suppose there's a thing in itself that humans are in principle incapable of grasping, but which reflects the true nature of reality. Then human beings would be unable to recognise it or take it into account in their beliefs, except perhaps in the way Kant attempts to do. Far from being inconceivable, as Dancy repeatedly asserts, uh, asserts these possibilities seem manifestly, manifestly, manifestly conceivable, even if we may doubt their plausibility. Now, I point this out not because I wish to argue that there are normative reasons we are incapable of registering, 
Um, but simply to emphasise, as Dancy in fact appears to concede, that the considerations he supplies in favour of the normative constraint are very weak indeed. In fact, I'm perfectly happy to accept the following on your handout, which I put under 16, the following four claims. One, that normative reasons are facts in the truth-making sense, i.e. states of affairs. Two, that normative reasons are capable of favouring or disfavouring certain actions. And three, that we're capable of registering such reasons. And four, that having registered such reasons, we're capable of taking them into account in our practical deliberation. Nonetheless, accepting one to four does not, as I see it, commit us to accepting the normative constraint. If this is right, it just goes to show that Dance's considerations above were not only weak, but in fact fail to support the claim he seeks to advance. We can do justice to one to four in a different way. If, with Dancy, we accept, one, that normative reasons are facts, um, as truth-makers, i.e. as states of affairs, this readily accounts for two. As noted earlier, facts as states of affairs seem just the sort of thing that can actually favour or disfavour certain actions. But then also suppose, contra Dancy, that motivating reasons are propositions, the contents of cognitive states. Would it follow, as Dancy appears to think, that humans are incapable of registering normative reasons? No, it would not. Agents could grasp that a certain fact or state of affairs counts in favour of some action without it being the case that the state of affairs itself serves as their motivating reason. Instead, they could grasp a proposition that picks out the state of affairs and be motivated by that proposition. They would then register the normative reason in question and be able to take it into account in practical deliberation, but their motivating reason would remain a proposition, not a state of affairs. All of the considerations that were buried in Dance's rhetoric can be accounted for without accepting the normative constraint. Dance claimed that if his motivating reason for going to Georgetown is that a conference is to be held there, and he's right about that, then something that is the case is his reason for making the trip. He insists that this shows that a matter of fact can be someone's motivating reason for action. Instead, I say that Dance's motivating reason should be characterised or would be characterised as something like the following true proposition, that it's desirable for me, i.e. Dancy, to attend the conference in Georgetown, and his normative reason would be characterised as something like the following fact. Dance's position being such as it is, the conference being held in Georgetown makes it good for him to make the trip there. Motivating reasons are true propositions, normative, true or false propositions, normative reasons are facts or states of affairs. Dancy might demand a bit more from us about what it means to act for a good reason, on our view, since we can't, strictly speaking, say that if his motivating reason for going to Georgetown is that a conference is to be held there, and he's right about that, a state of affairs is his motivating reason for making the trip. Well, that's right. But we can say that a state of affairs is his normative reason for making the trip, and although, on my view, motivating reasons are not states of affairs, our motivating reasons, as the propositions in light of which we act, will be true if the state of affairs obtains. Indeed, in such scenarios, the proposition that picks out the motivating reason is true precisely because the normative reason in question obtains or is the case. Equally, insofar as we can be motivated by our awareness of a normative fact, 
we can be motivated by a proposition which itself reflects our grasping what we have normative reason to do. In such a scenario, our motivating propositions will then pick out the normative facts precisely because we are aware of them. And if, in some such way, the agent has formed the motivating reason judicially, um, this can provide a case in which the motivating reason counts as a good motivating reason. But it's a good reason, not because it now suddenly becomes a different sort of entity, a state of affairs, but because it accurately picks out that normative reason as a state of affairs and has been formed appropriately. Contradancy, being able to recognise and take normative reasons into account, doesn't require that motivating reasons can be normative reasons, I suggest. All it requires is our grasping propositions that pick out these reasons. I submit that this account should give us and Dancy everything we want, bar, of course, the normative constraint. But our account also has a huge advantage over Dancy's when we consider what to say when we fail to grasp what we have normative reason to do. Instead of having to maintain that we're motivated by non-factive facts, whatever they are, we can still say that we are motivated by propositions, it's just that the propositions fail to map onto what we in fact have normative reason to do. We can, for example, be motivated by the proposition that drinking another beer would be a good thing to do without it being the case that it would in fact be a good thing to do. Or, to revert to Dancer's example, suppose the conference was actually in George Dale, not Georgetown. We could then say that Dancy has no reason to do what he takes himself to have reason to do, that is, that his source of motivation, the proposition that it's desirable to attend the conference in Georgetown, fails to map onto his normative reason, the fact that since the conference is being held in George Dale, he should make the trip there instead. My account also obviously satisfies the explanatory maxim, since in both success and non-success cases, the agent is motivated by propositions. It's just that in the former, the propositions are true and pick out normative facts, whereas in the latter, they're false and fail to pick out normative facts. In my view, Dancy was right to accept the explanatory maxim, but it identified the wrong explanations. We don't insist that facts explain motivation and then invent a type of fact that isn't factive. Rather, in both factual and error cases, the source of motivation is a proposition. It's just that in success cases, the proposition picks out a normative reason, whereas in error cases, it doesn't. My account also obviously has, uh, also obviously has the further advantage that it doesn't require, as Dancy put it, an outlandish philosophy of mind, since the account has maintained throughout that the contents of beliefs are propositions. It was, I submit... Dance's unsupported normative constraint that caused all the mischief. If we give this up, the motivation for his view, I suggest, evaporates and also the troubles disappear. Finally, consider what we should say about the relation between motivating reasons and sources of motivation. If we agree with Alvarez that motivating reasons, propositions for her, must actually be reasons, true propositions for doing something, it will turn out that motivating reasons are only a subset of sources of motivation in the sense I've been investigating. Motivating reasons will pick out sources of motivation to do what we in fact have normative reason to do. If that best reflects the way we employ motivating reason, we should just accept this. But it would, it seems to me, make my notion of sources of motivation a more useful concept, since we seek to explain motivation not just in success cases, but in error cases too. Alternatively, we could say that agents are motivated by apparent reasons, uh, 
propositions, whether true or false, and allow that some of those apparent reasons will correspond to normative reasons, whereas others will not. This would permit us to identify sources of motivation, or at least belief-based sources of motivation, with apparent reasons. But either way, sources of motivation will not sensibly be characterised as facts. I conclude, then, that sources of motivation are the contents of cognitive states. But in closing, I might note that I suspect that many would hear this as having a strong anti-Humean implication for our accounts of motivation. I think Scanlon certainly would. I don't think that follows, but I must reserve discussion of that for another occasion. Thanks very much.